Okay, here's what's going on. We are starting a new series called A Jesus Church Today, taking five weeks to look at what kind of church we want to be, what kind of church Jesus wants to build and is building, and I kind of want to explain what this means. So in Matthew 16, Jesus is having like a dialogue with his disciples, and maybe you know the story. He goes, hey, who do men say that I am? Peter and the disciples are like, well, some say you're John the Baptist who came back or Elijah or one of the prophets. Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, the guy that was known for always having his foot in his mouth, actually said something right this time. And Peter goes, well, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, then blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And then Jesus said this in Matthew 16, 18, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. On this rock, some say that rock is Peter. I and others would argue that that rock Jesus is talking about is the statement that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that he's the son of the living God. And he goes, on this rock, I will build my church. And listen, the gates of hell won't prevail against it, meaning the church will be this unstoppable force where I accomplish my will on earth as it is in heaven. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so Jesus introduces a couple thoughts, but here's the main thing. He says, I will build my church. Uh, This church and every church is Jesus's church. We want Jesus to build this church. I mean, this takes the pressure off of us. Jesus builds the church. We don't have to do the work. We want to join Jesus in this mission, but any credit goes to him, any glory goes to him. Jesus is doing it. And then think about it this way. This is Jesus's church. He says, I will build my church. So what does that mean? What does that look like? What does a Jesus church, like a church that Jesus builds, what does that look like? What will that be about? You know, we, we studied this. We went through the seven churches of Revelation. We kind of looked at seven churches. Uh, most of them failed and didn't do it right. They got corrected and rebuked. And so we want to look at like, but what kind of church does Jesus have in mind when he says, I will build my church? We've said this, but listen, guys, Jesus loves the church. He's all about the church. This is called the bride of Christ. The word church in Matthew 16 is this word ecclesia. The ecclesia just means the assembly, the called out ones, those who've been called out of the world into relationship with God. And he says, on this church, on this rock, I'll build my church. And so we want to kind of slow down and just ask these questions like, what is the purpose of church? Like, why did God, Jesus invented church, not man. Jesus built his church. What's our role? What's your role? What's the point of this? Why do we do this? I mean, a lot of people don't like the church, and understandably so at times. They go, man, the church is just filled with a bunch of hypocrites. I don't like the church. The church is messed up. They've hurt me. They've blown it. And people have a lot of negative attitudes and ideas towards the church, and yet Jesus says, this is my church. I love it. I will build it. So how do we be a Jesus church? Like, how do we be a church that Jesus builds? Like, what kind of components should this be? Now, um, we do are going to look at this, like, kind of like in a 30,000 feet view, and we're only going to do this for five weeks. I had, like, nine things I wanted to walk through, and I'm like, okay, I'll narrow it down to five. Uh, but here's, here's the idea. Um, any church you ever go to, whether the Lord calls you out, you move, you go somewhere one day, we want you to look for, like, these components of the church. So here's the next five weeks. Here's today and the next five weeks. Uh, we're going to be talking about what a Jesus church looks like. Here's the first one, the gospel. A church that's about the gospel, then we're looking at the word, the spirit, the mission, and then the why, which is like worship, glory. So here's what you should be looking for in a healthy church. And this is, these are some of many, but here's some key components. The gospel, we're about the gospel. Man, we're about the word of God here. We're about the pursuit of the spirit of God. We need the Holy Spirit. We desperately need him. We're about the mission of Jesus to make disciples. 
And then also the why, like why we exist to know God, to make him known, to enjoy him, to worship him, to honor him, to live for him. So we're going to look at this. Can we do that? Yeah? You guys ready? Okay. Yes? You guys awake? Are we all right? Okay, cool. Sweet. Thank you. So look at the, worship, the, the gospel. The first thing is the gospel. I want to start here because this is so key. The gospel is not something we ever graduate from. We're never like, oh, the gospel's for like new people who haven't heard this message yet. No, the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is especially for believers. We got to understand, like, we view the gospel at times as for those who haven't heard the gospel yet, which is true. But the gospel is for us. The gospel is for followers of Jesus. You don't graduate from the gospel and go, come on, Josiah, I want to know, like, five ways how to have a better marriage. Not that those things are wrong. Not that it's wrong to go into those deeper teachings. But we want to go into some of those teachings through the lens of the gospel. We want to do it with, like, a gospel-centered marriage, a gospel-centered life. We want to talk about these things through this lens. This is so important. I love how a guy named Dave Harvey put it. Listen to this. He says, the gospel is the heart of the Bible. Everything in scripture is either preparation for the gospel, presentation of the gospel, or participation in the gospel. Like, that's what the Bible is about. We're going to walk through that this week and even more so next week. But when you read the scriptures, you go, man, it's, it's preparation for the gospel, this coming arrival. It's the presentation of the gospel or how you and I participate in this gospel work. So we want to be a church that is just centered on the gospel of Jesus. We want to be known for how we communicate the gospel of Jesus. We don't want to forsake the gospel of Jesus. We want to double down on the gospel of Jesus. We're saying that to grow in Christ is to grow in the gospel. That we want to grow in our maturity, we have to grow in the gospel. One way of saying it is growth in Christ is never going beyond the gospel, but going deeper into the gospel. You with me? Growth in Christ is never going beyond the gospel, but how do we go deeper into the gospel? How do we press into it? The gospel is not just the way we begin in Christ, but it's the way we grow in Christ. I love how J.D. Greer, pastor, said it. Listen to this. He says, the gospel is not just supposed to be our ticket into heaven. It's not. It is to be an entirely new basis for how we relate to God, ourselves, and others. It is to be the source from which everything else flows. We want this to be the way we relate to God, ourselves, and others. Everything flows from this point. So um, whether or not you are new, you're like, I don't really know. I've heard the gospel. I think I know the gospel. Whether you've been in the church for 20, 30, 50, 40, 50 years, we want you to know that the gospel is for everyone. That growth in Christ means we're growing in our understanding, in the implications, in the way we live out and carry out the gospel in every fiber and fabric of our being. Let us not leave the gospel. Amen. Let us not think we graduated from the gospel. Let us press more into it. Now, here's kind of the fun nerd side of me I'm going to just throw out to you. A few books that helped prepare this for me today, and I just want to recommend it in general. One's a book called The Explicit Gospel by Matt Chandler. Um, got this a couple years back. I would highly encourage this. I'm going to use some terms from this book, and I'll explain that, but very helpful uh, when it comes to just the gospel. Another book I want to recommend is called The Gospel uh, by J.D. Greer. Really creative title. Um, really appreciate this guy and his ministry, but it's just called The Gospel. Honestly, it's a brilliant book. It's one of those things where you realize the gospel is simple enough for a child and yet rich and deep enough for a mature, seasoned believer. And then another book is called Center Church by Tim Keller. You guys might have heard of him. Um, you'll hear about him a lot today. Uh, I just really appreciate this guy's ministry. But Center Church is basically saying, how do we be a church centered on the gospel? And so that's really our desire. How do we be a church that is centered on the gospel of Jesus? That we don't, don't get distracted with side conversations, with, with side initiatives, that we'd be a church where you go, wow, this church is just focused on the gospel of Jesus. Like it plays into every area of their life. Like, yes, 
We're going to address certain issues of our day, but we're going to do it through the lens of the gospel. You guys remember we did the gospel and? The gospel and race, the gospel and politics, the gospel and honor. We did all these different things, but it wants, we want to address it from the lens of the gospel. We want to be a church that's centered on the gospel of Jesus. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians 15, which I think is the clearest and uh, probably the simplest explanation of the gospel and also how it carries out into life. So let's do this. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to read verse 1 through 11, and then we'll pray and look at it more in depth. You guys ready for the gospel? Yes? Okay. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, let's read it. Here's what Paul writes. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the, say it, the, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. Literally, it says in the Greek, you are being saved. If you hold fast that word, which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Listen, here's the gospel. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, or Peter, then the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, like they're still around, but some have fallen asleep, some have passed. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. We won't have time for this today, but this is a brilliant argument for the resurrection of Jesus, saying, hey, we're still alive, come talk to us. The guys are still alive, go talk to them. We wouldn't make this up and then say, go talk to them, go talk to them. Go go hear from yourself. Verse 9, he says, for I, I am the least of the apostles, who are not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but, verse 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more uh, abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Because my hope today, again, is that this message of the gospel uh, doesn't become old, doesn't become old news, but it's good news. And that just kind of resonate with us again. And I just want to pray and just kind of say, Lord, I, I maybe have heard this or I know this and just kind of take away that mindset and say, Jesus, help, like I want to go deeper into the gospel. I want, to, I want to go deeper into my exposure and understanding of the gospel. What does that mean and how does that play out into my life? So let's just pray for that. Just invite the Lord to speak. Let's do that. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who you gave for us, who left heaven, who took on flesh, who became a man, who walked among us, who suffered with us, who died for us, who rose again, who ascended into heaven, who's at the right hand of you, Father. We just thank you. We just ask that you'd speak, that you'd move, that Jesus, you'd refresh our hearts today, that we'd see that this is um, just the most powerful message there is, and you ought to remove just any sense of familiarity or cynicism. And God, I pray that it would just be brand new to us again this morning. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. You know, many of you might have seen this last year or heard of it, um, but John Krasinski, the beloved Office character, he created uh, a series of YouTube videos called SGN, Some Good News. I don't know if you saw this. I don't know if you clicked on it or watched any of them. Uh, But basically, he kind of offered this uh, little series of YouTube videos to kind of say, hey, there's still some good in the world. Like, he's created this in the March of, of 2020, amongst the, like the time of COVID, 
Like social media, as you know, then and even more so now, was just incredibly toxic. All that was being seen on the news, just like painful, terrible things all around the world. So he created some fun little videos just called Some Good News. And he had like different celebrities on, Steve Carell and uh, his wife, Emily Blunt. He had like Oprah and The Rock and he had like all these different celebrities. And then usually at the end, there was like some heartfelt like story. I don't know if you guys see this. I don't know if this is like ringing any bells. I don't know if you watch this. Um, I love John Krasinski. It's like, I guess you could say my man crush. But it was just fun. It was fun to watch. It's okay. So I'm okay with that. But it's just fun. He's funny. It was fun. It was like really lighthearted. It was like, oh, this is so good. Like finally there's some good in the world. I'm not going to lie. You watch some of these videos towards the end. Like you're always like tearing up. They like shared a, a little girl who just walked through cancer, was loved by her family in that famous viral video. Then they're like talking about a family for Christmas. They just bought all their Christmas gifts and donated like $5 million in their name. And you know, by the end you're like, this is beautiful, right? Like it was so moving. It's actually, they had like a little slogan, a little tag. And this is what they're, they're uh, tag essentially was it says a news a news show dedicated entirely to good news SGN a news show dedicated entirely to good news and apparently it was such good news that a few months later he sold SGN for an undisclosed amount which probably just means millions of dollars so the gospel or this good news uh, was incredibly pricey um, but anyways I just think this is hilarious I loved it I thought it was so funny and I was honestly so moved by it but as I'm watching this, and, you, and you, you saw the generosity in these videos, you saw what they would do for some of these people. And obviously, as for us, as followers of Jesus, this pales in comparison to the good news that you and I have in Jesus, to the generosity that you and I have experienced from God. You think about someone getting Christmas gifts or some sort of donation made to a charity. But then you think about where we were at, like where we were at with God, how we were far from God, dead in our sin, you think about our attitude towards God. I don't want anything to do with him. Maybe at different points in your life, you're like, God, I want nothing to do with you. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of Christians. I'm sick of you. And you think about God, just persistent love. God's love that pursued us. God's love that left heaven, became a man, walked among us, was poor, was broken, suffered innocently at the hands of others. Also, you and I, what could be with him? Also, you and I, could, we could be with Jesus forever in paradise, in heaven, have everlasting life, fullness of joy. I mean, when you truly think about their good news they shared and the good news you and I have, I mean, it truly pales in comparison. And I guess my question is like, do you really believe that? Do we believe that? You know, like when I'd watch those videos, there's some sort of emotional response. Let me just say this as Christians, guys, it is okay to have an emotional response to the gospel of Jesus. Sometimes we give that a bad rap, like, oh, it's just too emotional. Like when you truly understand what Jesus Christ has done for us, how could you not be? How could you not respond with gratitude or emotion or tears or thankfulness or joy or praise or worship? How could you not when you experience and taste and see that the Lord is good? Like something has to change. Something has to happen to you internally, externally. It just leads to life transformation when you go, oh my gosh, we have such good news. And my hope today is get back to this good news, to like make it the lens by which we see everything else is through the gospel of Jesus. Like I want us to truly be a church that is centered on this good news, that's all about the good news of Jesus. That we're captivated again by the good news of Jesus. That our hearts are like refreshed again by the good news of Jesus. That it doesn't become old news, but it always just be good news. See, in the Gospels, and almost every epistle actually, in every epistle by Paul, he's essentially trying to just get everyone's attention to go back to the Gospel. I'm like, in all the Gospels, he's trying to like recover people's mindsets and say, we need to get back to the Gospel of Jesus. In the book of Galatians, remember what he says? He, in Galatians, he goes, people have altered the gospel. He says, if anyone comes to you and brings to you another gospel, count them accursed. See, in, the, in Galatia, that area, that region, the gospel has been altered. 
In the, in the book of Colossians, Paul's writing to the city of Colossus because the gospel was being basically meshed with worldviews of their day. It's called syncretism, but they're taking the gospel, and they're taking the common worldviews of their day, and they're basically trying to blend them together. They're saying, here's what's popular in culture. Here's what the Bible says. How do we kind of mix these two together? So they're not really competing. And Paul's basically saying, stop, stop compromising the gospel. Stop changing the message of the gospel. Stop trying to combine it with culture. In the book of Romans, if you remember what that book was about, it's essentially about the gospel. And in throughout Romans, there's like this mindset of, I'm a Jew, the gospel's for Gentiles. They need God. The Gentiles were saying, we have them, the Jews need God. And if you look at Romans, the book of Romans is saying, everyone needs God. Everyone needs the gospel. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone here needs the gospel. See, throughout the epistles of Paul, he's saying, we need to go back to the gospel. Like, a lot of our division... A lot of our pain, our suffering, our misunderstandings, a lot of the hate we see, it goes from people who've kind of forgotten about the gospel. They've gotten away from the gospel. The gospel is not their priority. Some other worldview has been kind of taking place. Some other worldview is kind of being, is coming in. And these bases trying to recapture our attention for the gospel of Jesus. And here in the book of 1 Corinthians, he says basically this, that the gospel needs to be of first importance. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 3. I'll just read it again, but in the ESV, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance. This is first importance. The gospel's of first importance. And so it's like, we as Christians, how do we keep the main thing the main thing? How do we make sure that the gospel is of first importance for us, that it has that priority again in our lives? And so today, again, my hope is that we would be a church, a Jesus church, a church that is centered on the gospel of Jesus. Now to do that, here's two things, two questions I want to look at. Here's the first question. What is the gospel? Obviously, like define it, Josiah. What is the gospel? And then number two is, how does the gospel reshape every area of my life? So what is the gospel? Then how does this gospel reshape everything about me? How does it transform my way of living? So let's look at the first question. All right, what is the gospel? Can we read again verse two or verse one? Look down, 1 Corinthians 15, verse one. What is the gospel? Paul says this. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I, re- I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved or are being saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What is the gospel? Paul's like, I, de- I delivered to you, I declared to you the gospel. Now, we got to understand this. The origin of this word, the gospel, we got to understand it's not a Christian word. This word gospel is euangelion. And let's just say it. Euangelion. Would you just say euangelion? Euangelion, right? I have to like practice this. It's hard. Euangelion. This was not a Christian word. This was not a Christian term. This was like a Greco-Roman term. This was a term, and it just simply means good news or good announcement. It also really just means a royal announcement. This word was used primarily to communicate something about the kingdom, the king's kingdom, what happened, some sort of change maybe or transition or things have stayed the same. So for example, if two kingdoms went to war, they went to battle, and let's say you're like waiting back, we're in the city going, there's war over there, like our men are out there or we're here, like what's going on? I'm not a warrior, like did we win, did we lose? The idea was you would wait for someone to come back and to bring you news. Was it going to be good news, euangelion, or was it going to be bad news? Was it going to be news to say, listen, we won, the king has stayed the same, or we've lost, there's a new king, actually, they're coming now, we're about to be slaves. Like, there's stories of people who would run back into the city, and they'd bring the good news. They'd bring the good announcements. And again, it was like a royal announcement. The idea was, it's more of a declaration now of what has happened, of where you stand, of where you're at, 
The reality of just a good news, of the good news, is just saying this life-altering event has, take place, has taken place. You need to listen up. And so you think about this. Think about King David. Think about these guys going to war or battle. Think about waiting for that news. Good news, we won. See, here's what Paul's saying, the gospel, the UN going is this royal announcement. It's this royal announcement that Jesus has won. You were once a slave. You were once actually a prisoner. You were once held captive. But Jesus Christ has won. Good news. You're under new authority. Good news. You don't have to be a slave to yourself, to the world, to the enemy. Good news. You've been set free. Good news. Jesus Christ has defeated sin, hell, and death. They're no longer slaves to those things. That whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And Paul is playing off this royal announcement where it's saying, there's another royal announcement that has been made, and that's that Jesus Christ has defeated sin, hell, and death. That, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Jesus Christ has won. And it is good news, this royal announcement, that Jesus is the King of kings. And he said, you don't have to be a slave to those things anymore. See, I think the first part, I'm trying to just really make it really clear that the gospel is just simply good news. It's a declaration of this life-altering event that Jesus Christ has won. And again, it is not based off of your fight. It's based off his fight, what he did. This is not good advice. The gospel is not good advice. Hey, got some really good advice for you. Here's how you can clean up your life. Here's how you can get out of slavery. It is good news. You've been delivered. Now walk out. The prison doors are open. Walk out. It's good news. You've been set free. Believe this. Walk into this. Step out of your prison cell. Experience the freedom you have in Christ. It is more of a declaration of what's been done, and not, it's not an announcement of what we need to do. And this is such good news. It takes the pressure off of me. It takes the pressure off of you. It says it's finished. It's done. This is truly, truly good news. That's why I believe in Romans 10, 14, Paul says, how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the euangelion, the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. He goes, man, how beautiful are the feet of those who go out and, pre- and pre- preach this good news. Those who go around and say, why are you still living like you're a slave when you've been set free? Why do you still feel like you're captive by the enemy when Jesus Christ has won? There's a royal announcement. Did you not hear? Did you not hear that you've been set free? This is what the gospel is. We're called to be gospel preachers or gospel communicators just to declare what Christ has done. We're not trying to give people a, a set of rules to keep, and then maybe one day God will love them. We're not trying to give people a set of things to do. We're just saying, man, it's done. It's finished. This is good news. Amen. Is this not good news? It's not based off what we've done. It's based off what Jesus did. Good news. Amen? This is good news. Now, I want to kind of define this a little bit more, because I love this. Um, in, in Matt Chandler's book, uh, The Explicit Gospel, he talks about two ways we should approach the boss, gospel. Truly, the gospel is one message, and if you read Acts, if you read the gospels, if you read the epistles, one message, but a lot of times communicated different ways or different emphases. So here's how he describes this. He goes, the gospel should be communicated in two ways. He talks about the gospel on the ground and the gospel in the air. The gospel on the ground and the gospel in the air, all right? And here's the idea. The gospel on the ground is like that gospel on the micro level. The gospel on the ground deals with the idea of what must I do to be saved? It's more personal. The gospel in the air is like that 30,000 feet view. It's more of um, what hope is there for the world? The gospel in the air tries to deal with the questions of like, well, where is human history going? How does this all end? Does God, what does God do in the end? I get that God saves me, but what about this world? I mean, what's happening to this world? So the, the Bible kind of presents the idea in that way of like this personal way, but also how we're part of a bigger story. 
So I want to break this down for us. Can we do that? You guys ready? The gospel on the ground and the gospel in the air. Let's look at the gospel on the ground. Paul makes it really clear, the micro level, the gospel on the ground in verse 3, like we just read it. He's really clear what the gospel is in verse 3. Can you look down and read with me in verse 3? Here's what he says. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.3, he says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Listen, here's the gospel on the ground. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. This is, you could say, the gospel on the ground. If someone's like, what's the gospel? I mean, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 4 is probably the clearest definition of here's the gospel. Paul goes, here's the gospel. It's of first importance. I already declared it to you. You know this that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And he was buried. It's clear that he's dead. And he rose again, according to the scriptures. I mean, there's so much there in that. But he's saying, like, look at according to the scriptures, like all of these prophecies pointing that there would have to be someone that would come that would save us, that he'd have to also suffer. He'd have to die. And that on the third day, he'd have to rise. This prophecy is referring to his resurrection. I mean, there's so much in that text. But he, the thing about this, he's communicating substitution, saying Christ died for our sins. Christ rose again, according to scriptures. You see, the good news or the gospel on the ground, or just simply the gospel, is that Jesus Christ, the righteous, left heaven, came to earth, lived a sinless life, that he lived and walked among us, was rejected by his own. Even though he was innocent, even though all he did was love, people hated him for it. He was taken to a cross He was crucified. On that cross, the sins of the world were placed on him. On the cross, the righteous wrath of God was poured out on him, that there should be judgment for sin, that God cannot just wink at sin. God cannot just overlook sin, but sin must be punished. It must be judged. And either we're punished for our own sin or our punishment was placed on Jesus, and it was placed on Jesus that day. And Jesus died died for our sins, and then three days later, he rose again for us, conquering sin, hell, and death. And as the Bible would say, as many as you believe on him shall be saved. I mean, the gospel is simply, look what Jesus has done. Do you believe this? The gospel on the ground just deals with that idea that Jesus Christ has paid it all. We don't do it. On the cross, he says, what? It is finished. It's done. You could never work your way to God. You could never be good good enough or holy enough. But the, the, the gospel on the ground communicates God is so good. God is so holy. God is so just. God cannot just wink at sin and be like, oh, you sinned? No big deal. Wink. I can just do that, right? No, God goes, in my justice and in my holiness, I still have to punish sin. But in my goodness and in my mercy and in my grace, it's on my son, Jesus. See, the Bible talks about this idea of just substitution. That's what Jesus was, taking our place. You see, every other worldview, even today in our culture, it's funny, even those who are anti-God, even those who don't believe in God, even in this like, kind of woke culture we live in, you think about it, it's really interesting. We don't live in a climate or, or moment of forgiveness. We live, in a, we live in this weird moment where it's just bizarre. People want you to like be be righteous, be good enough, and then one day we'll accept you. If you're good, you're part of our crew. If you're bad, we're going to cancel you and you're out of here. I mean, whether it's like non-believers or whether it's just different worldviews and religions, religion always kind of has this order, and I love this. Religion says, hey, obey. If I obey, I'm accepted. Religion says, obey, and you will be accepted. The gospel says, you are accepted, therefore obey. It's so different. Religion says, if I obey, maybe one day God will accept me. Christianity says, you're accepted, therefore obey. In light of being loved, in light of being redeemed, in light of being saved, therefore obey. Okay, let me say this. The gospel is truly good news because the bad news is truly bad. What makes the gospel such good news is that the bad news before it was really bad. There's a tendency for me to want to be like, let's talk about the good news of Jesus, but we got to talk about the bad news that came, right? The bad news is the reality 
that if we did not have Jesus who come, who died, who took our place, we would have been separated from God. We would have been eternally separated from him. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this. He goes, think about God. God is eternal. And God is eternally good and loving and joyful and gracious. The Bible says in his presence, there is fullness of joy. That's God. So to reject an eternal God who is good, love, joy, peace, you're going to get the exact opposite of God. So if you reject this God who's eternally loving and eternally good and eternally joyful, you're going to get the opposite, which is you're going to get eternity, where it's misery, pain, suffering, agony, darkness, lack of community, lack of life. And you see, that's why he's like, that's what hell is. Hell is just the opposite of God. Hell is just God saying, okay, you don't, you don't want me, you can have the opposite of me. Hell, as the Bible says, was created for Satan and his angels. It wasn't intended for us. But obviously, we could not be in God's presence because sin has separated us from God. And so God says, let me bridge the gap. Let me go to you. Let me rescue you. You can never bridge the gap. So I'll go to you. I'll become a man. I'll die on your behalf so you can be with me. And you see, the gospel is just saying, hey, listen, it's really good news because the bad news is truly bad. That God created everything really good and the man screwed it up. And God goes, even though you screwed it up, I'm going to fix it. Even though you blew it, I'm going to pay the price for that. I'm, I'm going to take it on. And you see, I love how Paul put it in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. He says, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus, man, he just delivers us from the wrath to come. Thank you, Jesus, for that. I love that verse. Jesus, thank you. You've delivered me from the wrath to come. The wrath one day, the wrath today. You just delivered me from wrath. Thank you, Jesus. The good news is so good, is good because the bad news is so bad. It is really hard to give someone like, a, like the best steak in the world when they're like full. If, like someone's really full and you're like, I have the best food ever. Like I'm full, right? Or like again, to appreciate some of those things, like, you know, for someone to appreciate like a nice cup of water, it's almost like you need to bring them to the desert. Let them get thirsty a little bit. And you're like, I have some water. The truth is, again, I don't know if it's always good news to us because we don't really know the bad news. Like we don't know that we're like in the desert, skin and bones, like starving, thirsty, and then Jesus goes, I have something for you. But sometimes it's easy for us to be an American and be like, no, I'm full, I'm good, I'm good. And we need to see that, no, no, we're, we're hungry, we're broken, we're starving. The good news is only good if you realize the bad news. And we, we got to see this from Jesus. Here, here's the idea. The gospel on the ground is simply about this truth. God saves sinners. It's that micro, God saves sinners. This is what he does. God is in the business of saving sinners. Jesus said that in Matthew 19. He goes, I did not come to save the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. I can't come for people who think they're righteous. I came for people who know they're sinners. So what's so important for us is to know we're sinners because that's who I came for. I came for you. A guy named J.I. Packer, like a famous theologian, said something so profound about this idea of the gospel on the ground. He said, listen, we'll put it up here. God saves sinners. And he breaks that down. God saves sinners. God, the triune Jehovah, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of a chosen people. The Father electing, the Son fulfilling the Father's will by redeeming, the Spirit executing the purpose of Father and Son by renewing. That's God. Saves. Saves. Does everything. First to last, that is involved in bringing man from death and sin to life and glory plans, achieves, and communicates redemption, calls and keeps, justifies, sanctifies, glorifies, and then sinners, sinners, men as God finds them, guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, unable to lift a finger to do God's, or, or, or to do God's will or better their spiritual lot. God saves sinners. We know who God is. We know what salvation looks like. We know who we are. He goes, this is the gospel at the ground level. What must I do to be saved? You remember that jailer 
uh, with Paul in Acts 16. Paul, you know, the earthquake happens. The jail doors are opened. Paul's still in there. The jailer sees him. He's amazed by, like, this encounter. He's like, why didn't you go free? You know, Paul shares the gospel with him, basically. He goes, well, what must I do to be saved? And if we're in Acts 16, Paul says, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I mean, the gospel is so beautiful. It's so simple. It, it, it is so true that my child can understand this. Hey, repent and believe on Jesus and you will be saved. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is so simple. I love this about the gospel of Jesus. Then what must I do to be saved? Confess that Jesus, your Lord. Jesus, your master. Jesus, you have all rights and authority to my life. And we believe in your heart, your whole being. Everyone agrees. Their heart is just in your whole being, your mind, your will, your life. So I believe in my heart truly. I trust in you truly that Jesus, you rose again from the grave. That men, that women saw you. They gave their life for that truth. They didn't benefit financially. They didn't benefit in power. They didn't benefit in any ways. In fact, they're just fit of the lions for the truth of the resurrection. They saw you. And this good news spread across the world to this very day. Here we are. Jesus, I confess to your Lord. I believe in my heart that you have been risen from the grave. I believe that, Jesus. You know, I love this. It's just simple faith in Jesus. You don't always need great faith. You just need faith in Jesus. It's not the power of your faith. It's the power of what your faith is in. Right? It's not your faith. It's the object of your faith. You know, some of you know this. I joke about this, but I absolutely, like, hate airplanes. Like, I hate airplanes. I don't like them. And I was just trying to talk to people. They're like, I don't get it. Why don't you like airplanes? I'm like, I just don't like them. They're just awful. I don't know. Like, I literally get in the airplane, and like, I'll, like, look at the pilot and be like, did he get in a fight with his wife? Like, is he going to have a bad day, and we're going to all go down? Like, I don't know. I'll be, like, sitting in my, my chair and just, like, imagine the floor opening and be, like, falling 30,000 feet. I just don't like airplanes. It's, it's awful. Now, here's the thing. I still get in them. Like, I still get it. I still fly. Like, I'll still get in it. I don't like it. My wife's like, you've gotten a lot better. Like, I've gotten better, but I still don't like it, right? The, the point, though, is think about this. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. I want you to think about this. It's not about how much faith you have. It's about the object of your faith. My thing is this. There are some Christians who have a great faith. You're like, I want that kind of faith. Great. That's awesome. God's given them the gift of faith. That's a beautiful thing. But can I tell you, just get in the airplane. Like, just get in Christ. See, it's not about like, well, you, I'm in the airplane, not with a lot of faith, but I'm still in it. My, my point, I'm not trying to argue to have little faith today, but I'm here trying to argue and saying it's not about your faith, it's about the object of your faith. Just get in. He's faithful. He's worthy. How are, how are you saved? How are you right with God? Confess with your mouth. Jesus, your Lord, believe in your heart, God, you raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Do you believe this? You see, the gospel on the ground is that question of what must I do to be saved? Well, it's kind of a trick question. Don't do anything. You receive this free gift. You know, they asked Jesus that in John 5. What are the works we must do to have eternal life? He goes, this is the work you must do. Believe on him whom the Father has sent. Like what? What are the works you must do, Jesus? I want to plural. Tell me like a lot of things. Nope, one work. It's not really work. Believe on him whom the Father has sent. That's salvation. That's, that's, that's the gospel. Believe on Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Put your whole being, trust with all of your hearts in the resurrection of Jesus. This is that gospel at the micro level. Now, the gospel in the air, though, that's the gospel in the air. The gospel in the air, the gospel in the air is that micro level, or is that macro level. It's that, well, what hope is there for the world? Like, look at the world. Like, where is the world going? How do we know things are going to get right? I mean, this world is, like, messed up. The gospel in the, in the air deals with just that kind of question of what hope is there for, like, human history? Where are we going? That's the gospel in the air. And it's more that macro level of, like, where are things going? And so anyone who kind of studies the Bible or talks about this in, in theology, we kind of break up the Bible into four big parts, kind of like four epic themes in the Bible, you could say. And it's creation, fall, 
redemption and restoration, right? Like, maybe you've heard this, but this is kind of like the storyline of the Bible. Everyone actually repeat after me. Say creation. Creation. Say fall. Say redemption. Restoration. This is basically the, the themes of the Bible. They're the big themes of the Bible, right? And you kind of say, like, we're on this journey towards restoration at this point. And what is restoration? What is renewal? What does this look like where Jesus comes again? So let's kind of break this down first and foremost. Creation. Creation is basically what God wanted and intended for us. Like, you think about it. God, like, shows his heart for us. Man and woman made in his image, naked and unashamed, enjoying God in the garden. Like, it's great. God's like, I want you to enjoy me, enjoy each other, enjoy this. I love you. I am good. I created all things good. And God makes things really good. And man, like, can't handle it for like a day. And like, we just screw it up, right? But we screw it up. We call it the fall. It's man saying, I don't want God's way. I think there's another way. Maybe God's withholding good. We don't necessarily trust or believe in the word of God. We question it to the point where it leads us to maybe, maybe our ways are better than God's ways. And fall is where man and woman ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Sin came into the world and just sin plagues everything. Sin plagues earth, sin plagues creation, sin plagues our bodies, sin plagues absolutely everything. We would argue that that's why when we see just even the world falling apart itself, disease and hunger, rape, murder, racism, any sort of suffering, any sort of sin, we go, this is a result of sin, this is a result of the fall. All of these things are a result, we'd say, of sin, of man taking his will into his own hands rather than God's will. And so we want to look at it from that perspective. We want to understand this, that sin does plague everything. So when I say, what's the macro level of, you know, God's, uh, the gospel in the air? Here's the idea. Romans 8.22 says, creation itself is longing for the day of redemption. Even creation's like, come on, Jesus, when are you coming back? Like, we want to get out of this state. We like the Edenic state. We like the garden state. Like, we want to get back to that. Even creation's like, I'm kind of done and over this. And I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Like, the older I get, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of done. My body's like old. I don't, I'm done. Like, I want that. It's like, I'm done. Like, I want a new one again. Like, I don't want sin to keep plaguing and going on and on. And, the, and then in comes the story of redemption. And here's why this is so beautiful. You like, but Josiah, <clears throat> Genesis through really the gospel of Matthew, what about that? There's basically these little hints that the Bible's been dropping of like redemption, redemption. And it's this idea, one author put it this way, it's redemption by substitution. One author says, at the heart of all the biblical writers, biblical writers theology is redemption through substitution. At the heart of the Bible is this idea of redemption through substitution. When you just look at it and you're just like, wait, this animal dies innocently for our behalf. Can I switch places? I get the animal's innocence. It took my sin. There's all these different little stories in like Hosea, right, of the Bible of Ruth, where you see basically this redemption thing happening, buying back, taking back. You've been sold to slavery. You've been sold to just this lifestyle that's just killing you, but I'm taking you back. You're mine. I purchase you. I own you. I love you. I get you. You get me. And there's like all these little micro stories of redemption pointing to the grand story of redemption that's found in Jesus. And it's a story of redemption by substitution. I'll be, honestly, I'll be completely honest, and I've shared this before, but I think one of the most profound things in my life, like I grew up in the church hearing the gospel, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've heard this before. Jesus died and rose again. But one of the most profound things I think that ever happened, and I don't know why or how the Lord works, I was 16, listening to a message, and it was on 2 Corinthians 5.21, and I've shared this before, but it's the profound verse where Paul says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And basically, this verse introduces this idea of substitution. Now, please stay with me. This is one of the most beautiful concepts to me in all of the Bible. Redemption through substitution. For so long, I thought Christianity was by what I did or did not do. You know, listen, salvation is not about addition. Salvation is not about subtraction. It's about substitution. 
why this was so important to me is like, well, if I stop doing these things, maybe God will love me and I'm taking my faith serious and I finally get it. And I thought it was about subtraction. Or maybe you think it's just addition. If I start doing these things, listen, salvation is not about subtraction or addition, but substitution. What Jesus Christ has done for us, he took my place. He took my sin. And I remember just sitting there listening to that day and be like, that's it, that's it. This is the best news I've ever heard. It just takes all of the weight off me. Come to me, all those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I feel like that's what happened that day. I was like, that's it, Jesus. I, I, I'm so into this. This idea of substitutionary atonement, that you were my substitute. You took my place. You took my sin, my filth, my disgust, the things I've done, the things others have done to me. But you take that all, and then you give me your righteousness. This is too good to be true. Then you give me your life, the life you lived on earth. That's how God sees me. He sees Jesus Christ's Jesus Christ righteousness placed on me and it's the most freeing message in the world. And so you see kind of the story in the Bible of creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. And you're like, okay, well, what happens next? The idea is that we're going towards this pinnacle, this day, this peak, the climax of the story where Jesus comes again. He rules and reigns. That as Isaiah would talk about, I love the wolf and the lamb lie down together. The child finds a snake and picks it up. and It's like, I have a snake. There's not worried at all. Like you just see harmony and peace within creation. You truly see no more disease, no more war, no more suffering, no more pain, no more agony, no more cancer, no more death, no more masks. Thank you, Jesus. No more any of that. You just like see, you just see a moment. You go, oh my gosh, Jesus, the way is intended to be. Wait a second. We're going back to the garden. Wait, Jesus, at the cross, you took the curse of man. The curse that Adam and Eve were to bear that day, you took that curse on the cross. You reversed the curse. You gave us eternal life. We're going towards this moment of day where we say, listen, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be a moment and there will be a time where Jesus is ruling and reigning. And we can say, Jesus, this is the way it's supposed to be, where we walk and talk with you, where it's like that, that garden-like state again. Thank you, Jesus. You see, here's the idea, guys. God has this great plan. Redemption's happened. Restoration is coming. And he said, who wants to join me in helping get this gospel out? Who wants to be the feet who gets the gospel out to be participators of this? To say, hey, why are you still in prison when the jail doors have been open? Who wants to be a part of preaching that good news? And the idea is God is working towards a plan of restoration. And who wants to help restore and make all things new? Revelation says this, the Bible talks about this concept of God is constantly and always making all things new. The way in the Greek, it's like, I'm always, always making all things new. Like, I'm constantly making all things new. This is what God does. He makes things new. And he's like, who wants to join me in this? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth that is in heaven. That we're joining God to bring renewal, restoration to this world through the gospel of Jesus primarily. And that will also play out into every other fiber and fabric of our being and how we do life, how we do relationships, how we love each other, how we listen well, how we serve each other well. But that's playing out from that perspective. There's the gospel on the micro level. What must I do to be saved? There's gospel on the micro level. What hope is there for the world? And we say it's through the story and lens of Jesus. That's why Leslie Newbegin, one guy said this, the Christian story provides us with such a set of lenses, not something for us to look at, but for us to look through. Did you hear that? The gospel is not something you just look at. The gospel is a lens in which you look through. This is how I see the world. This is how I see everything now. Oh, that person who's like a jerk and mean, Jesus is pursuing them and loves them and died for them. I'm going to regard no one after the flesh. The person who hates me, hates my worldview, hates what I stand for, I'm going to love them sacrificially and continually. I'm going I'm to have this gospel perspective and lens in, in how we do this. So we said, what is the gospel? But here's what I want to just close with some thoughts with you guys. How does the gospel reshape every area of my life? Paul actually kind of goes on to say that. So how does the gospel reshape every area of my life? If you want to take a note, please write this down. Number one, I want to look at this idea. If we're going to be a gospel-centered church, 
how does the gospel reshape every area of my life? Number one, we see here gospel-centered identity. Gospel-centered identity. All right, look at verse 9. What does Paul say about this? Verse 9, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. I love this. Gospel-centered identity. Paul goes, listen, man, you want to know who I was before Christ? I was the persecutor of Christians. That was my identity. If you remember in Philippians 3, he's like, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. I was, a, I was the Jew of all Jews. I mean, no one kept the law like I kept the law. And I, but he goes, and I was the persecutor of Christians. But I am what I am today by the grace of God. I am called Paul the Apostle. I'm Paul, the one in Christ, because by the grace of God. I love that phrase, I am what I am by the grace of God. But I don't want to pass over this. Listen, our identity is found in the grace of God. Like, you are what you are because of the grace of Jesus in your life. Your identity now is in what Jesus has done, not in what you do. The beauty of this is my identity is not in my successes or my failures, which so often we can find in those two extremes, but it's in what Christ has done. So it's so freeing to think that, hey, the things other people have done to you that you feel like, well, I am this, that's not your identity. That's not your identity. The things that you have done, you go, well, I've done these things. I am this way. That's not your identity. You're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Like, that's not who you are. You are what you are by the grace of God. You are in Christ. You are a new creation. You are a son or daughter of God. You are the bride of Christ. I'm sorry, that's your identity. Anything else to try to find your identity is not your identity. You are not an adjective Christian. You're not some sort of, I'm an American Christian. I'm a white Christian. Nope, that's not how it works. You are a Christian. You are a follower of Jesus. You are a new creation. That is your prime identity. Then you go, wait a second, we all have the most important thing in common together? Yep. We all share the same identity that you are in Christ and I am in Christ. Can I tell you that it means you cannot get better than you are and you cannot be worse off? Do you get this? It's not like one day it's like, well, I'm a, I'm a bad Christian. Like, what is that? Like, no, we have Christ's righteousness. I can't add to his righteousness. I can't take away from his righteousness. You see, positionally, I'm in Christ. Practically, yes, Josiah Gray is still a filthy sinner who desperately needs Jesus. That's my practical place. But my position, Ephesians 2, 6 says, you are seated in the heavenly places. It uses this, these terms to describe your, your, your present position. Your present position positionally right now, you are in Christ. Positionally right now, you are seated in the heavens. That's how God views your position. The idea, it's 1 John 3, 14. You've passed from death to life. Do we get that? Like it happened. It's not going to undo that. It talks about metamorphosis. You've been transformed. You can rip the wings off a butterfly. It's still a butterfly. The point is, it's happened. It's taken place. This is so freeing, because why? The gospel's good news about what Christ has done, not about what we do. So it takes all of the weight, all of the pressure off of me and you, and it says, Jesus did it. Enjoy it. This is your identity now. Like, church, I would love for us to just find that common identity. Oh my gosh, you believe in Jesus? We're all both in Christ. We're the most important thing in common. Thank you, Jesus. Doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, what your background is, where you're, none of that matters. We're, all, we're in Christ. This is my primary thing. I look in, let's see how Keller put it. He says, if our identity is in our work rather than Christ, success will go to our heads and failure will go to our hearts. So if you find your identity in something else, when you do well, look at me, I did well. When you do bad, oh, I did bad. But nope, if your identity is in Christ, it's that steadiness. My identity is in you. Things go good, things go bad, I'm in you. This is my identity. I'm not going to be moved. Amen? And then Paul talks about this. Listen, after identity comes your activity. 
Paul then describes his gospel-centered activity. Look at verse 10. Again, Paul would go on to write this. He says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which is in me. I don't know why. I just love the way he says this. He's like, I am what I am by the grace of God, and I worked harder than everyone. Yet not I, it was the grace of God. Like, he has to acknowledge even his activity is the grace of God. Like, he almost like, starts to boast for a second. He's like, but even my bo- it's the grace of God. Here's the thing. Our identity, our identity, like our activity, comes from the gospel as well. That you realize, even the good things I do, it's because the love of Christ compels me. See, even my activity in, like, what I do in my life, it's like, wow, you're such a good person. It's like, no, no, Jesus in me, man. Like, if anyone sees something good in you, the idea is, like, what? They should glorify the Father in heaven. You go, hey, in reality, that's Jesus, man, because that's not me. That would not be my first bent, my first desire, my first thought, my first action. Paul's like, I am what I am by the grace of God, and I worked harder than you all. This is my activity. But it still wasn't I. It was the grace of God that was in me. He's boasting in this gospel-centered activity now. Like, you're going to do things for God's kingdom, and you cannot boast in what you've done. It's still by the grace of God. Like, everything goes back to this grace of God. It leaves no room for the flesh. It needs, leaves no room for pride or ego. Like, as Christians, we can't have, like, this like, sense of pride or ego. You go, I'm sorry, it's just completely by God's grace. I am who I am by God's grace. I work hard by God's grace. Everything is by God's grace. God gets the glory. It's God's grace. And it just takes the identity and activity off of yourself and places it into the grace of Jesus. And this is where freedom comes in so clearly. Now, Martin Luther said this, We are saved by faith alone but that faith that saves is never alone. Like the point is like your identity, like yes, you're saved by faith alone, but it will be always accompanied with some sort of activity. You know, if I could just like leave you with this primary thought. I talk to people who say, hey, grace, man, like I believe in the grace of God. I'm saved by the grace of God. So I can just do whatever I want. Sleep with whoever I want. Do whatever I want. Don't tell me what to do. Josiah, you said we're saved by grace, not of works. Let's say what you boast. So I'm do whatever I want. I go, absolutely. And Titus 2.11 says this. Listen, clearly. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and to live righteously, soberly, and godly in this present age. Here's the idea. Titus, Paul says to Titus, Titus, don't forget, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to everyone. The grace of God teaches us. It teaches us. It transforms us. It teaches us what? To deny yourself, to deny your flesh, to deny ungodliness and worldliness, but he says to live righteously, godly, and sober in the present age. What am I saying here? Listen, when you've experienced the grace of God, you're going to be transformed. Remember, um, your identity comes before your activity, but there will be activity. See, like when the grace of God hits you, you are going to live differently. You can't boast and be like, well, I just can do whatever I want because I'm saved by grace. Absolutely. But that grace, trust me, it's going to wreck you. It's going to change you. If you've truly tasted and seen the Lord is good, it's going to do something to you. So people are like, I'm a Christian, I just do whatever I want. It's like, again, let that, has that grace really captivated you? Has it really transformed you? Has it taught you how to live godly and righteous and sober in the present age? Because that's what grace does, according to Paul. It teaches, it transforms, it corrects. And I think this is so beautiful because we can't hide behind this, like, I'll just do whatever I want kind of mentality. It's like, no, no, the, the grace of God, the true grace of God will also teach you and correct you, come alongside you and transform you. Listen, um, if someone got, got hit by a train, um, they're going to be different, right? The point is, if you get hit by the grace of God, you're going to be different. You're just going to be different. And Paul's like, I am what I am by the grace of God. And I labored more than you all. And then Paul just ends with verse 11, basically just says, and I preached and you believed. My thing is this. Preaching is just declaring what God has done, what God has done on our behalf, communicating the wonders and the truth of God 
of his goodness, of his love, of his mercy, of his, how, he, how God broke in, how God rescued, how God redeemed. And he says, and you believed. And my question to you is, do you believe? Like, do you believe this? I want to say this. God doesn't just save sinners like out there. Like, oh, God saves sinners. I know that. Like, God saves you. God died for you. Like, personalize the gospel. For God so loved Josiah. For God so loved, put your like, name there. The, the point is, this gospel, this message, is not just like, oh, it's some good philosophical thought or idea. It is, it is the good news that Jesus Christ has come to save you specifically and personally. And then he invites us into this like macro-level style of, do you want to be a part of the renewal and restoration of all things? Do you want to be a part of my coming kingdom? Do you want to be those who sought first the kingdom? Do you want to be those who pray for the kingdom to come? Do you want to be those who help advance the kingdom of God on earth as is in heaven? The idea is like now there's this macro-level of the gospel in which we do life. So we're going to do marriage through this lens. We're going to do business or personal life through this lens. We're going to do like life through the lens of the gospel of Jesus. Not so that God would love me more, not so that God would like think, okay, now you're a good Christian. I'm sorry, I've already been saved by the grace of God. But now that grace transforms me and changes me to participate in the work with Jesus. I get to participate. I want to participate. Thank you, God, that you called me out of darkness into your marvelous light, that I've passed from death into life. I can't wait, but help be a part of this. That's what the gospel does. It gives you new motivations. It replaces just lustful desires with heavenly desires. It, it just does that. How? How? I would say just stare into the face of Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Preach the gospel to yourselves daily. Remind yourselves of the goodness of God daily. Remind yourself of what God saved you from daily, what God called you out of daily. Listen, we never graduate the gospel of Jesus. Amen. I think our issue, if anything in the church, could be this familiarity. I think if the big, you know, not that necessary syncretism, that could be part of the issue, not where we combine with culture's views, that definitely could be part of it. I think our biggest issue might just be it's not of first importance. And Paul's like, I want this to be of first importance. Again, I, I just love how this one pastor put it. He said this, the gospel is not just the diving board off which we jump into the pool of Christianity. It is the pool itself. Church, the gospel is not where you begin. The gospel is not the ABCs. The gospel is the A to Z. The gospel is everything in between. The gospel is our starting point, our middle point, our ending point. We say, Jesus, I'm, I want to live in this place. You know, John Piper simply said, you never, never, never outgrow your need for the gospel. Yes, Jesus. Never outgrown this. You are part of a bigger plan of restoration. You're part of a bigger plan of renewal. And he says, I, I preached and you believed. And I'd say right now, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus and be part of this restoration process with Jesus. Amen.